Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. You're ready to move forward and buy your first home in Maryland, but need somebody with experience when it comes to getting your mortgage. Someone local, someone part of the hometown where you'll be living. And that's where Arundel Federal comes in. In business since 1906, Arundel Federal is this area's hometown lender and experienced. That's the Arundel Federal Advantage, from application to closing, a bank you can trust. Visit ArundelFederal.com to view rates and get started. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender, NMLS number 671636. Millions of despairing men, women, and little children. Victims of a system that makes men torture and imprison innocent people. You cannot shake hands with a clenched fist. Produced by a nuclear exchange would be carried by wind and water and soil and seed to the far corners of the kingdom of God, the, the kingdom, kingdom of heaven. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. We're not saying that planet Earth is coming to an end. We're saying that planet Earth is about to be refurbished, spaded under, and have another chance to serve as a garden for another civilization. Most of the people in here are just your reflections. They're your mistakes. 1776 will commence again if you try to take our firearms. One million of the planet's eight million species are threatened. You are what you repeatedly do. Therefore, excellence ought to be a habit, not an act. Your lives and the credibility of the United Nations is at stake. Epstein didn't kill himself. The reason this is such an interesting time is not only because we're on the threshold of the end of this civilization. They're trying to take you out with bullshit. The experience of the past two years has proven beyond doubt that no nation can appease the Nazis. To those who can hear me, I say, do not despair. The misery that is now upon us is but the passing of greed, the bitterness of men who fear the way of human progress. The hate of men will pass and dictators die, and the power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish. In the language of the U.S. Department of Defense, these are unidentified aerial phenomena. Roswell's a very interesting place with a lot of people that would like to know what's going on. Uh, there is very compelling evidence that we, uh, we may not be alone. This is the Garden of Doom. Welcome everyone into Garden of Doom. And this week we're welcoming back in Ralph Ellis. Now, you're going to say back in and I'm going to tell you yes. Uh, and that's because you're going to be hearing these shows back to back. But we actually recorded part one of the show several months ago. So for the two of us, we're reconvening. But for the audience, <laughs> chances are very strong that that, that uh, you just heard the, the show last week. Um, if you have not listened to part one, you really should. I, I do tend to, to uh, recommend people other shows with the same guests or, or shows that uh, by happenstance or plan have um, complementary material. But this really, truly is a part two. Uh, we, we stopped at a part of the story. We're going to... 
finish that story and move into uh, King Arthur. So you really should listen to part one. If you want to listen to part two first, fine. I'm never going to tell someone not to listen. Um, but in part one, we, well, we, sure we, but mostly Mr. Ellis, uh, identified historical Adam and Eve, Eden, uh, the, uh, the exoduses from Egypt of the Israelis, identified who Moses was, uh, explained most, if not all, of the plagues and miracles. Uh, and we left off at uh, the historical Jesus and, and him actually being removed from the cross by his subjects, acolytes, apostles, and being identified as the prince of Odessa, Prince Isis. Um, so that's really a very brief version, but basically what, you know, if you follow the biblical history, you know, taking you from year 6,000 or 4,000 BC, basically to year, I guess, 33, 34 AD. Um, we, you know, uh, Mr. Ellis has condensed it really starting more probably around uh, 1500 BC through about 33 BC. And we're going to, uh, I mean, AD, and we're going to continue. So uh, first of all, thank you for rejoining us. How are you today? Pleasure. Good to be uh, back with you again, Jeff. So, uh, yeah, it'd be interesting to see the reactions when these uh, episodes go out. Hope you, people enjoy them. I hope so too. It's a lot. It's 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 uh, it's very different than what uh, most people have been exposed to. Period. Um, a few might have heard the Tuthmosis Moses things before, because that's been in a few um, like historical fiction thrillers, and, and you know the, those books like the James Berry, Steve Rollins, Dan Brown types. Um, you know, which after the Da Vinci Code, I think like the entire world sort of started devouring those books for a decade. Um, but aside from that, the rest of it was fairly much news to me. So anyway, uh, this is your show. So for, for today, I'm handing it over to you. You are the gardener of the garden. Um, I guess take us to the take, uh, you know, uh, who was bringing down, uh, Jesus, Prince Isis, um, and of Odessa, and I guess remind us a little bit about Odessa and, you know, a little, uh, you know, I guess take us to, you know, where you think is the best part to start this part of the story to move it forward. Yeah. Um, well, perhaps we should back up a little bit before, don't, don't let me forget um, about the uh, cross and the incident there, but let's back up a bit and, and uh, see how Odessa was um, founded. So this is Edessa rather than Odessa. Mm -hmm. So this is in... Um, Eastern Anatolia. Um, and we're actually talking about AD 68 rather than AD 30. So it's a slightly different era. It's 40 years different for the uh, crucifixion. We'll come on to that in a minute as to uh, why that's relevant. Um, but Edessa, what is Edessa? Because it's been deleted from history. Most people don't know anything about it because it has literally been deleted from historical record by uh, the likes of Josephus Flavius, um, and done deliberately so because they didn't want you to know that Edessa was linked to the um, Jewish revolt. Um, and that's why nobody knows about Edessa. So how was Edessa founded? Well, I think this is relevant because it shows some of the international perspective to the gospel story. Um, it was founded 
as far as I can see, by a daughter of Queen Cleopatra, uh, a lost daughter. We won't go into the uh, whys and wherefores on that. It's a little bit too complex, but do read the book. That comes from uh, Cleopatra to Christ. And uh, she was given uh, as a diplomatic bride by Emperor Augustus to Phraates IV, who was the um, king of Parthia, they called it. You might call it Persia, same place. Um, and this was in, um, say, 20 BC. And she was the queen of Persia, Parthia, for 16 years, uh, 18 years, until she was accused of killing her husband, Phraates IV, and then she assumed the throne of Parthia. She became the queen of Parthia alongside her son, Phraates V, known as Phraates. Um, but obviously this was not a terribly popular move to uh, bump off the king. And they were also accused of having an incestuous relationship between mother and son. A little bit of Oedipus going on here. Mm -hmm. And so in AD 4, they were kicked out of the country. And so now we have the elements of what is the nativity story. Because the nativity story is all a bit odd. You have this uh, king, because he was called a king, who's uh, for some reason in a, a position of poverty on the move, something to do with taxes, being visited by the Parthian Magi. What's that all about? Well, in this story, we have all of those circumstances. So we have a royal family on the move, coming out of Parthia, um, who end up in uh, Syria and Judea. They um, are not exactly in poverty, but they lack a palace. So they are looking for somewhere to stay. They might have to stay in a stable, who knows? And of course, this is a royal family who would indeed be visited by the Persian Magi, the wise men, the, the priesthood and the wise men of Persia. Because any, any birth to this royal family would be potentially a king of Persia or Parthia. Right, a disputed and heir, a claim to the, to the throne. They would have a claim to the throne. And so, of course, the priesthood would come to that particular birth. And so we have all the circumstances um, that are given for the nativity story coming out of this royal family who were kicked out of uh, Persia, Parthia. And where do they go to? Well, we have a second story within Josephus where they are called the Babylonian Jews from beyond the Euphrates. And they also exited from Parthia at the same time. But this gives a little bit more detail, this particular second story of the same event, basically, um, where it says that they came out of Parthia with 200 courtiers and 600 uh, mounted um, archers. So they didn't come out in a complete state of poverty. They came out on their own terms, with their own army, with their own courtiers, and I think with half of the Persian treasury. Mm. And that puts a different spin on it, because now they're not just paupers, um, you know, fleeing from their original homeland. They came out on their own terms 
with a substantial amount of money. And so they were rich and influential and they could influence the politics of the region they settled in. And I think they settled in Edessa because we have this story of Edessa. Edessa is modern San Lurfa. It's in uh, eastern Anatolia. It's just above um, Aleppo. And uh, it suddenly flourished in the first century into a city-state, as did Palmyra, just below it, which I think they, they uh, owned Palmyra as well. Again, it flourished in the first century. And um, I think that Edessa was then established because a lot of people will say, oh, the monarchy of uh, Edessa existed a long time before that. Well, there is a vague reference to that in the uh, uh, Chronicle of Zutnin that, that there was a previous monarchy living there. But Moses of Karim um, says that Edessa was established in the first century by a king who's called Abgaros V. King Abgaras of Edessa. And again, people will not have heard of this chap because he's been deleted from history. And we know that Edessa and the king has been deleted from history because um, because the records uh, say so. Um, we have, for instance, um, Josephus Flavius, and he gives a story um, about John the Baptist, actually. So this is to do with the um, biblical story. Um, and because of the death of John the Baptist and the wife of, um, um, not Agrippa, one of the Herod uh, kings, Antipas, <clears throat> he sent his wife back home again. She was the uh, prince, princess of um, uh, Petra. Um, the daughter of King Aretas of Petra, and she was sent home, and she uh, and um, Antipas married uh, Herodias. Now, it was because of this illegal marriage that John the Baptist lost his head. Oh. So this is why John the Baptist got beheaded. So this is to do with the biblical story. So we're blending in some biblical history here. Um, but because of this, uh, King Aretas of Petra got very upset because his daughter had been spurned, and so he sent an army to go and punish Antipas, uh, Herod Antipas, the Tetrarch of Judea, uh, of the Galilee sort of region. Um, and Josephus says that in this endeavour, he was joined by some fugitives from Syria. And you're sitting there wondering, scratching your head, thinking, oh, come on, Josephus, tell us who these fugitives are. You know, Josephus knows everything um, about this era and these events. And Josephus just calls them fugitives. And you think, oh, hold on a minute. And then you, you, later on, because I didn't discover these works initially, you start reading the works of um, uh, Moses of Korin, who's a, a Syriac historian. And he gives exactly the same story. But he says that King Aretas was joined by the Edessan army of King Abgarus of Edessa in order to defeat Antipas. Okay, so now we get the full story. Um, and it was the Edessan army that came down and punished uh, the Herod Tetrarchs. Now, that's interesting on two levels. It tells us 
that Josephus Flavius is being economical with the truth. He is not giving us the full story. He has deleted Edessa from his history. That's why we know nothing about Edessa and the influential and wealthy Edessa monarchy. Um, so that's one thing it tells us. The second thing it tells us is that Edessa was something to do with the biblical story. Because why were they down there in the first place? Now, Aretas, we know why he was upset. He was upset because his daughter had been spurned. That's why he sent an army. But why did the Edessans send an army down to Judea? The only other thing that happened at this time was the beheading of John the Baptist. And so it's likely, highly likely, that John the Baptist was a prince of Edessa. That's why the Edessans got upset. That's why they sent the army down to punish uh, Herod Antipas, uh, the Tetrarch of Judea. So we're already introducing the Edessans into the story, who have been deleted from history. That's why uh, listeners, I was going to say viewers, but they're listeners, aren't they? Yeah. Listeners <laughs> will not have heard of Edessa and their very influential uh, royal family. So that was the establishment of Edessa. Uh, it was established by King Abgarus. Um, now, the, the mother, the, the matriarch who came out of um, Parthia on that exodus we were talking about, her name was Queen Thea Musa Aurania. Again, another queen. That, because I always wondered, you know, Jesus was called a king. Mm -hmm. And we've got this story about this king and his family. And you're thinking, well, if he was a real king and not just a pretend king, how on earth do you lose a royal family from history? Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary, void, or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. You've decided to move and picked the neighborhood you prefer, but how much home can you afford? Which loan term is best? Start by contacting an Arundel Federal Savings Bank loan officer to get the numbers you need and a pre-qualification letter to present to your realtor. No cost to you. Whether building or buying, Arundel Federal wants to be the local community bank that you trust and think of for your home mortgage. Contact us today at ArundelFederal.com. A pre-qualification is not a loan approval or commitment to make a loan. Additional terms and conditions apply. Member FDIC and Equal Housing Lender at MLS number 671636. You know, so that we don't know anything about them, and all we've got is these vague references in the biblical story. Well, here is a royal family who has been lost from history. So the matriarch was called Queen Thea Musa Aurania. She was the queen of Parthia, and we have her coins. She's a real person. Um, they've discovered many coins of hers, and we've got a bust of hers in the Iranian Museum, and she looks just like Cleopatra. Surprisingly enough, um, and her, I think, son was King Abgarus of Edessa, and her daughter was Queen Helena of the Adiabeni. Now, and they were married, of course, because they had a brother-sister marriage, as they often did. Mm -hmm. 
And now we have this contention which people build up into such a tragic affair, I don't know why, is that Queen Helena was the queen of Adiabeni. And they say that all these people were in Adiabeni, which is a place way over by Mosul, over in Iraq. And for a long time now, I've said <coughs> that Adiabeni doesn't exist. It's a, it's a pseudonym made by Josephus because he was not allowed to mention Edessa. And we've already seen evidence for Josephus not mentioning Edessa. And so he called them Adiabenans instead. And that was very contentious for a long time. And then I again discovered Moses of Corinne, the historian, the Syriac historian. What is Syriac? And, uh, yeah, Moses of Corinne says that uh, no, I'm Queen sorry. Helena... Uh, what, what, is, yeah. what does the word Syriac mean? I mean, I know what Syrian is. Uh, just just um, someone who comes from this, the, the, the region of Syria. Um, but it encompasses Syria and a lot of sort of Western Iraq as well. Oh. So Syriac would be all the way down to virtually Mosul, and it would in, include um, Armenia and places like that. That was a sort of a region, uh, and it, I think it was known as Syriac because they all spoke Aramaic, so they were bound by a common language and so on during the uh, second, third centuries they did. Makes sense. Um, and so Moses of Kareem says that um, um, Queen Helena of the Adiabeni was married to King Abgarus of Edessa. So now we have the link. <clears throat> At the very least, these two city-states are linked. Personally, I don't think Adiabeni exists. I think it was made up by Josephus to cover because he wasn't allowed to mention Edessa. I think Queen Helena was the queen of Edessa. And so they all came from Edessa, these people. And they do get a mention in the gospel story, in Acts. Um, we have the story of uh, Agabus. I'll just look up a... Um, a reference, so uh, it's Acts 11.28, um, and it says, And there stood up one of them named Agabus, who signified by the Spirit that there should be a great dearth throughout the world, which came to pass in the days of Claudius Caesar. It's probably about AD 48, AD 49, something like that. Then the disciples, every man according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren which dwelt in Judea, which they did, and they sent it by, to the elders uh, by the hands of Barnabas and Saul, which is all very interesting, because we know who sent this famine relief money. And from history, the person who sent it was Queen Helena of at Diabeni Edessa. So here in Acts, they say it was being sent by Agabus. And quite clearly, Agabus is just a distortion of King Abgarus, yeah. the king of Edessa. It's the same person. So this was the famous tale about this famine relief money being sent by Queen Helena and King Abgarus, who were married. They were king and queen. 
um, sending this money down to Judea because uh, the Edessans were Jews, of course. We'll come on to that in a minute. They were Nazarene Jews, um, the same sect as Jesus and, uh, and Saul. Um, so here they get a mention in Acts of the Apostles. Okay, it's being covered up because no one's allowed to mention these people, so it's being covered up. Um, but nevertheless, they are here in Acts 11.28. But the interesting thing is that this famine relief money was sent to Judea by Saul and Barnabas, the two apostles. Saul who wrote most of the New Testament. Right. Now, that's interesting because it means that Saul, St. Paul, was an ambassador of Edessa. That is how close this city is to the Gospel story. And you've got to ask yourself, if Saul was an ambassador of Edessa, why does Edessa never get mentioned within the Gospel story? If he, who was the apostle to the Gentiles, he was um, he was there conversing with James, the brother of Jesus. Um, he started up Gentile Judaism, simple Judaism as they call it, the Church of Saul, which eventually became Christianity. Because remember, Jesus was a Jew; he was a Nazarene Jew; he was not a Christian. Um, the two churches were entirely separate. One was the Church of Jesus, the other was the Church of Saul. And the Church of Saul was the uh, Gentile church, um, evangelizing to the heathens, that became more powerful than the Church of Jesus and James. And it was the Church of Saul that eventually became Christianity. Right. So Paul said, so Paul's Christian is believing and venerating the um, enemy of Jesus. They had a falling out at some point. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's very clear with the Acts of the Apostles that these two churches were at each other's throats um, because they were teaching very different things. This is why Saul got slung into prison, because he was teaching things that were uh, incompatible with, with Judaism because he had thrown the whole of Judaic Mosaic law out of the window and was preaching faith, faith in faith in Jesus, basically. Now, this um, was after the crucifixion or before? Uh, this was actually before, because he was doing this on his uh, evangelical tours across um, the Mediterranean in the AD 50s. Now, my chronology has changed somewhat because the chronology that is given in the Gospels is false. Um, this all happened in the AD 60s because it was a story of the Jewish revolt. The Because, you know, Jesus was a revolutionary. We all know that. He was involved in a, a revolt. He was jailed alongside murderers who had committed murder in the revolution. What revolution was this? The revolution that he was involved in was the Jewish revolt. And that links in, of course, with the Edessan monarchy because it was the Edessan monarchy who led the Jewish revolt. And this is against Rome, that. correct? 
Say, say again? This is against Rome, a revolt against Rome? Yeah, basically it's against Rome. They say it's a Jewish revolt, trying to say that this is, you know, an internal dispute within Judea. Mm -hmm. It was not. It was a revolt against Rome. It was a revolt uh, based on taxation. Well, and most are. <laughs> most are, yes. You see, when they came in out of um, Parthia originally, under Queen Theomusa Aurania, according to Josephus, they were giving lands on the eastern borders of Syria and Judea tax-free. And they wanted them there to act as a buffer state between Rome and Parthia, because Rome and Parthia had been involved in many disputes and battles and wars, and uh, uh, Rome had lost four legions or five legions to the Parthians. So these were the feared enemy of Rome. And so it suited both sides to have a buffer state in between the two, which was known as Edessa. And to fund their buffer state status, you know, as an independent principality, they, they levied their own taxes. And so they were not subject to the um, taxation from Rome. But of course, later on, Rome came around trying to tax them. And they said, no, you can't do that. We were given these lands tax-free by Emperor Augustus. And this started a tax revolt. Um, and, and, and we even see that in, um, in, in the parables. You know, We have the parable of the vineyard owner. And the vineyard owner um, is, is a landowner who plants a vineyard and gives it out to a tenant to farm his land. And he goes away to his faraway lands. Uh, but when the, you know, the harvest is in, he sends his uh, ambassadors down um, to the vineyard to get his rent. And the vineyard owner will not give him his rent. And he beats up his ambassadors and kills them. And so Jesus says, this is a parable out of the mouth of Jesus. And so Jesus says, and what shall we do with this evil tenant who will not pay his rent? Well, we should kill him. Okay. Or well, what does that have to do with the pauper prince of peace that the Jesus character is supposed to be? Why is he um, supporting absentee landlords killing their tenants if they don't pay their rent? Doesn't go along with the standard sort of Christian message. Why? Because this was never written as a standard Christian message. This was written uh, as a story about the Edessan monarchy. And so all you have to do to understand that particular parable is change uh, absentee landlord into the Edessan monarch and change tenant into the Romans. And now it makes sense. So what it was saying is that um, the Edessan monarchs owned this land. Mm -hmm. Uh, and they had, as it were, rented it out to the Romans because the Romans were now sitting on their lands. So they send ambassadors down to Rome and say, where, where is our rent for you being on our lands? And of course, Rome uh, gives the middle finger and says, well, actually, you owe us um, taxes instead. And so the Odessan monarchs are saying, well, what should we do with these terrible tenants, these terrible Romans? who are on our lands and will not pay any rent. 
Well, we should kill them. It was a call to arms because this was a revolt. It was a revolt against Rome. And you need a, you know, if you're going to have a war, this is something that Putin didn't, <laughs> didn't understand when he started his, his little revolt against uh, Ukraine. If you have a war, you need a rationale, you know, that everyone can rally around. This is the reason we're going to war. It's because the Romans are not paying their rent. They're on our lands and they are not paying their rent. And therefore, we should punish them. Um, and that's what the parable is all about. That's what the whole of the gospel message is about, if you read between the lines. But remember that this, this story has been penned by the likes of Saul and Joseph. I don't, I'm not sure if people are aware, but a lot of information from Josephus has found its way into the Gospels. This is why they say that the Gospel story happened in the AD 30s. Um, but they had 40 years of oral transmission. They never, they couldn't even write it down because they were so illiterate. And so it was only written down in the AD 70s. Yeah, there was always uh, that long gap of decades in between the, uh, you know, the crucifixion and, and when the Gospels were written. A lot of them got rejected ultimately, but still, the, the, the date of when they were written was never disputed. And I never quite understood why it would take so long. And, you know, frankly, that that many people in that, in that period of time lived to be that, that old uh, an age, um, you know, because that, wasn't really the, the fortunes of most people. There were a lot of people died very young. And um, anyway, so so uh, obviously your uh, your different um, time period sort of reconciles that. Yeah, it reconciles it because I mean the Jews are highly literate people. You know, you've only got to read Joseph Flavius to realize how literate they all were, and he wrote. Pages and pages. I mean, he's got, uh, they split their books up into books. So, I mean, one of them's got, um, oh, I forget how many. Anyway, he's written uh, three, four books that, um, you know, if you get them in the modern format, it's about three inches across. So it's a huge, great book. Right. Um, they were a highly literate people. They could have written all of this down. Um, Jesus was a king. Of course, he would have had courtiers. He had ambassadors. He would have had people that could write this down. The reason why it was not written, the reason why they claim it was only written in the AD 70s is because it's been known for decades and centuries that there is a lot of material in the Gospel of Luke and Acts of the Apostles which come directly from Josephus Flavius. Now that's a problem because Josephus was not writing until the AD 70s. And so Luke and Acts of the Apostles have to be uh, written in the AD 70s. And so they've got this chronological chasm, as I call it. And what do they do? Well, they just say, oh, well, um, they just had oral transmission until the AD 70s. It's just their excuse for overcoming um, that chasm. But in my chronology, of course, there is no chasm whatsoever. These events happened in AD 66 to AD 70, which was the Jewish revolt, and they were written down immediately afterwards because Josephus began writing his books in about AD 71. 
at the behest of Emperor Vespasian. So why did they uh, say the gospel events only occurred in the AD 20s and AD 30? That's the question. To cover it up, yeah. Um, because this was on the um, uh, at the behest of Emperor Vespasian. It suited Vespasian to have this story because what he wanted was a, a method. He wanted a version of Judaism that would neuter Messianic Judaism. So the Nazarene were Messianic. They were um, a revolutionary band of... Um, Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Upgraded kitchen, new patio deck, home office. Do more with your home this year with an Arundel Federal Savings Bank home equity loan and take advantage of your hard-earned equity. Enjoy fixed interest rates, fixed monthly payments, and up to a 15-year term. One loan, endless possibilities. Visit ArundelFederal.com to view rates and apply online. Conditions apply. Member FDIC and Equal Housing Lender. NMLS number 671636. Jews, in fact all of them were a little bit um, messianic, who were for the revolt. And what Vespasian wanted was a Rome-friendly form of simple Judaism, which would neuter messianic Judaism. And the Judaism for Gentiles that Saul had already created nearly two decades before this, his simple Judaism, as I call it, Judaism for Gentiles, was absolutely perfect because it was already well known throughout the uh, sort of east of the empire. It was Rome friendly, deliberately so, because Josephus was, uh, sorry, Saul was a Romophile. Uh, it said, you know, wonderful things like render unto Caesar what belongs to Caesar, turn the other cheek. Um, your leaders are appointed by God, therefore you should obey your leaders, etc, etc, etc. It was just perfect for Rome. And so Rome, under Vespasian, actually promoted what became Christianity. The persecution that we all hear about was the persecution of the Nazarene Church of Jesus and James. Those were the people who were being persecuted. Um, because they didn't like mess, they didn't want more revolts, of course, in the eastern part of the uh, Roman Empire. And to, to separate this story from the Jewish revolt, because they didn't want anyone to know that you could actually revolt against Rome, um, they set the story in AD 20s and AD 30. So they shoved it 40 years uh, back into the past um, so that nobody could link it up to the Jewish revolt. And that has skewed, that chrono chronological chasm has skewed all of the history of this region uh, in so many different ways. But, I, but we know that this was a later story because we have um, 
elements like um, the, the death of Zacharias, uh, Zacharias Baruch, which was a very famous death that happened between the altar and the temple. Uh, and Jesus laments this particular death. But that's odd because we know when this death happened, uh, Zacharias Baruch was killed between the altar and the temple in AD 60, AD 66 or AD 68, so during the Jewish revolt. Yeah. Well, the fact um, there was 60 anything already is important. <laughs> it's, it's a problem, yeah. We have Jesus actually describing the siege of Jerusalem when he says that Jerusalem will be surrounded by a trench and a wall and not one stone will be uh, left standing upon the other. That is a description directly from Josephus about the Jewish revolt. In That would be AD 68. Uh, when the Romans put a wall and a trench around Jerusalem. Um, we also have the uh, Jesus lamenting, no, he uh, lampoons um, Hakaseth, uh, Zizit ben Hakaseth, um, and, and because he had large tassels and he liked the cushions in the upper chambers and all of this sort of stuff. Now, this is actually a famous quote from the Talmud. And the trouble is, Jesus says exactly the same lampoon as the Talmud does. But as the Talmud describes, Zizek ben Hakaseth was an AD 60s character. He was a leader of the Jewish revolt. So we have all of these direct implications from the um, uh, gospel story that this was actually an AD 60s story. And it makes more sense in that perspective that Jesus was a leader of the Jewish revolt because the Edessan monarchs, according to Josephus Flavius, the Edessan princes and kings led the Jewish revolt when it first began in AD 66, when the um, legion of Cestius, the Roman legion of Cestius was destroyed by the uh, Jewish rebels. That was led by the Edessan princes. And the Jewish revolt only ended when those same Odessan princes surrendered to Titus, the son of Vespasian. So the whole of the Jewish revolt revolves around the Odessan monarchy, and yet they've been deleted from even modern histories. If you read a modern history of, of the Jewish revolt, it doesn't tend to uh, uh, doesn't tend to mention the Odessan monarchy. Hmm. At the very most, they might describe some somebody coming from Adiabeni, but as we've already seen, the queen of Adiabeni was the queen of Edessa, so we're back to square one. Nobody will mention Edessa. Well, that's a, a cover-up that survived a long time. Um, 2,000 years. Yeah. So that takes us into the 60s, and that, of course, brings us to the, the timetable when you've indicated that Prince Jesus was crucified. Uh, and, of course, that makes sense because being a Odessan priest and uh, a prince, rather, not priest, maybe priest also, I don't know. But, um, you know, that, that would be consistent with Rome waging war against Odessa and, and the areas around. So uh, I, guess, I guess that picks up where we sort of left off. Yeah, on, on the previous one. So we had Jesus on the cross. So, um, But we actually have this from real history. So we don't have to just rely on the Gospels. We have the story from Josephus Flavius. Uh, remember, Josephus, although he's an author, at this time, uh, he was the Judean 
army commander in command of Galilee. And then he swapped sides and became the Roman commander working for Emperor Vespasian. Right. So after the revolt had finished, he came back from Tekoa, which is just to the south of Jerusalem. And he saw the three leaders of the Jewish revolt, who were his former compatriots, being crucified in the Kidron Valley. Okay, so we have three leaders of the revolt being crucified, and they are noted by Josephus, who goes to the um, uh, governor and gets permission for them to be taken down early. Permission is granted, they're taken down early, two of them die, but one of them survives. Now, the person who took them down from the cross was Josephus. And we can easily take that to be Josephus bar Matthias, because the father of Josephus was called Matthias. So the person who took them down from the cross was Josephus bar Matthias. Josephus of Arimathias. Sounds familiar. He's written himself, yeah, he's written himself into the story. He's there. He is Joseph of Arimathea. Um, because, as I say, the father of Josephus was Matthias. And it's quite obvious because Joseph of Arimathea does exactly the same thing. He takes the three leaders of the revolt down from the cross. Um, and two of them die. One of them survives. Okay, they say resurrection, but he survives. And depending who you listen to, he then scurried them off uh, across Europe and over to um, Britain. Yeah, yeah, probably he did. And this gives us an extra insight into why this revolt happened, um, because uh, the gospel story that says that uh, Jesus had a crown of thorns, and the crown of thorns was the uh, traditional crown of the Edessan monarchs. They all wore a crown of thorns and a purple cloak. Well, the purple cloak was the um, symbol of the emperor of Rome. Right. And so this confirms that this was a dispute of, against Rome, uh, that the Edessan monarchy wanted not just to take over Judea, they wanted to take over Rome because the throne of Rome was empty. Nero died in AD 68. The throne of Rome was empty for whoever could grab it. And, of course, four emperors, as it were, threw their hat into the ring. Um, so we had the year of four emperors. And, you know, they, they came and quickly were disposed of and dispatched. Um, and finally, we came, well, it was the year of five emperors, really. Because finally it came down to a battle between uh, Commander Vespasian and the King of Edessa in the Jewish Revolt. And basically this was the last battle in the year of four emperors. Whoever was going to win this particular battle in Judea was going to become the next emperor of Rome. And so if the... Jesus Easter's character, the King of Edessa, who was known as King Jesus Manu, uh, King Jesus Emmanuel, um, if he could have pulled this off and won this battle against Commander Vespasian, he would have become the next Emperor of Rome. And we know he, he wasn't, right? We we know that it's Vespasian, but it also explains that I mean Vespasian 
I, I'm not the historian that you are, but one thing I remember about Ves- Vespasian from school and from some books, even the, some fiction, James Mishner's The Source, among others, um, that Vespasian got especially uh, draconian, cruel. Basically, he would, he started raising ev- everything, and by raising, I mean R-A-Z-I-N-G, not, not <laughs> raising up, which was really not the Roman way if they didn't have to. They would rather have taxable people and more assimilation and uh, and people sort of semi-willingly coming into the empire but they want usable land they wanted soldiers they wanted you know they wanted the, their front lines to be someone else if possible just like you know everyone else does um but he got very hard line and that would explain well i got to do this if i want to be emperor um and so you know salt all your lands kind of thing well yes but uh, actually when he became he was known for being the most enlightened um, and kindest emperor that Rome had ever had. Yeah, well, that was after so, he became emperor. <laughs> yeah, right. As a commander, yeah, he did what you have to do as a, as a commander. Yeah, he, he raised cities and so on. But he also negotiated. Remember, this was not just, you know, scorched earth policy. He went down Syria and Judea with his armies, and half of the cities opened their gates to him. Mm-hmm. And he just bypassed those cities. He didn't uh, touch them at all. So there were many cities that he, he just bypassed and remained, you know, as they had been, uh, supporters of Rome. But the, the cities that shut their gates to Vespasian, he destroyed. Yeah, uh, mimicked um, by the Khans later on, uh, or probably probably many others as well. Yeah, yeah. So we have this story, which is very, very similar to the um, gospel story. And it changes the story slightly because it means that this was, a, this was a story about a revolt against Rome. And the chief protagonist was this King Jesus Manu, King Jesus Emmanuel, who was the, uh, uh, the king of Edessa. And he was obviously captured. He was crucified. He was taken down. He survived. Very unusually, he survived. Um, there is a possible story of him being taken to Alexandria because uh, Vespasian had a problem. He was not royal, and he needed an oracle on his side. And so they tried to invent all these sort of miracles that happened before him. You know, this ox burst into his dining room and bowed before him. No, that was that was one thing that happened. But he was in Alexandria, and they brought before him a strange guy who, who was crippled and should never have been there. It was impossible for him to be there. A guy called Basilides, and, and that's based on the Greek Basilus, meaning a king, um, who was brought before Emperor Vespasian. And uh, Vespasian was persuaded to spit in his eyes because he was blind in one eye. If he spat in one eye, he would um, he would see again. And if he touched his heel, he, his lameness would go away. Now, this spitting in the eye business is, is one of the miracles of Jesus, remember. It's what Jesus did to restore sight. Right. Um, so here's Vespasian performing Jesus' miracles on a, a guy who's lame, who might have, you know, crucifixion. Mm-hmm. who's known as a king who should not be there because it was impossible that he could ever be there 
I think this was the, the, the king of Edessa, who was now in Alexandria. And of course he should not be there because he was dead. Right. He'd been crucified. I mean, how many people um, survive crucifixion and come back, as it were, uh, from the dead? And the reason for having this guy there is this was the main oracle that um, Vespasian needed to give him the confidence to become the emperor. And the other thing he wanted was the star prophecy. Now, the star prophecy was that there would be an eastern star who would become the king of the world, the king of Rome. Now, and this was a Judaic prophecy, of course. Now, who was the Judaic prince who was born under the eastern star? That, that was the Jesus character. Mm -hmm. and, but the thing is that Josephus Flavius gave the star prophecy, the Judaic star prophecy, to Emperor Vespasian. He bestowed it upon Vespasian because he said, look, you're the king in the east because you're over in Judea. So this prophecy belongs to you. It, it means that you will become the next emperor. And all of this shenanigans meant that Vespasian now had the confidence to to sail to Rome to become the next emperor. Because remember, he was just a tax collector uh, and an army commander. He was a bit of a nobody. And so with these oracles on his side, he sailed to Rome. But some of those oracles were stolen directly from Jesus. So he's basically usurping Jesus as being the next emperor of Rome. And uh, so, yeah, so the world turned at that stage. You know, we could have had Emperor Jesus mm -hmm. and we would have had a completely different uh, Roman Empire. I don't know how successful that would have been or not been. I don't know. Um, but it would have been very different. Um, I mean, Jesus, for instance, although he was um, in modern terms, you would call him a deist or a racist because he was only really working for the Jews. He wasn't working uh, for the rest of the empire, whereas Vespasian was obviously working for the whole of the empire. But the Jesus character was also very interested in technology. Um, we have the record of him uh, turning water into wine, which was a trick jug from here on of Alexandria. It's well known. I don't know why people don't talk about this more. Uh, but in the first century, here on of Alexandria, who was the sort of Leonardo da Vinci of that era, made all of these mechanical, wonderful mechanical devices, which you can see now in, in Greece. If you go to the um, Technology Museum uh, in Athens, you will see all of the machines that um, here on of Alexandria made, including steam turbines and God knows what. But one of the things he loved making was um, trick jokes that turned water into wine. At Overstock, we know home is a pretty important place, and that's why we believe everyone deserves a home that makes them happy. Whether you're furnishing a new house or apartment, or simply looking to update and refresh a few rooms, Overstock has everyday free shipping and amazing deals on the beautiful, high-quality furniture and decor you need to transform any home into the home of your dreams. Overstock, making dream homes come true. And it's quite obvious that the Jesus character, as a prince, as a king, um, would have had one of these trick jugs in order to entertain his um, uh, guests at his wedding at Cana when he married Mary Magdalene. Um, 
that's what you would do as a monarch. That's why Hieron of Alexandria was making many of his um, wonderful devices were to entertain the populace, mm -hmm. and they were obviously bought by the you know by the priesthood and by the monarchs and aristocracy. You know, he made metal birds and sang and all of these sort of things. You know, um, uh, but he made trick jugs that turned water into wine, and it's quite obvious that Jesus had one of these trick jugs from here on. Um, and again, why is that not mentioned by people when this is so famous? We still have the original designs, you know, the original manuscripts on which this was designed. Um, and yet nobody mentions this, you know, in regard to the uh, gospel story. It's a collective blindness that we're suffering. Well, I so, mean, it's sort yeah. of a, you know, you, t you take away the biggest miracle beyond resurrection. And I mean, after that, it's it's sort of the walking on water one when, you know, you, know, you start taking away. Uh, that's probably why no one talks about it. It's you can't prove something that, that you know, that's not, on the, you know, without the time machine. And you're going to make a lot of people upset. Critics, you know, there, there have been many critics of Christianity down through the uh, almost centuries nowadays, and yet even those people don't mention the obvious similarity between uh, Jesus and his water to wine and his other miracle, which is the raising of Lazarus. And the raising of Lazarus is, is quite obviously a third-degree Masonic raising into the third degree within Freemasonry. Uh, it's exactly the same. And so... It means that Jesus was a Freemason. But of course, that's what his title meant. He was never called a carpenter. I don't know where they got that from. Mm -hmm. He's called a tecton. And a tecton is an architect. You can still hear uh, the Greek in the English, architect. And a tecton in the Greek can also mean a Freemason. So what is this, the Lazarus raising? What What is the, I mean, you say it's obviously the, the third degree raising. I, you know, I'm not sure unless someone else is a Mason, they would know what that is, or Freemason. So Yeah, well, um, as a Freemason, so the raising of Lazarus is, is Lazarus, who was the uh, brother of uh, Mary and Martha, who, who, is, who dies and he's put in a tomb, and three days later or whatever, is it three days or on the fourth day? Yes, yeah, so three days later, uh, Jesus comes along and raises him from the dead. And he comes out of the tomb still hoodwinked uh, with, with a napkin over his face. Um, that's what you do in the third degree of Freemasonry. So uh, in the third degree, you become uh, Hiram Abif, who was the chief architect of uh, King Solomon. And the chief architect of Solomon was killed by uh, three, three ruffians, and he was buried in a shallow grave. Um, and they search for him, and on the third day, they find the shallow grave, and he's brought back to life by the lion's grip. And so within the ceremony of the third degree, you become Lazarus, and you go into your tomb, into your grave. Oh, it's a reenactment um, ceremony. Not Everything is, is symbolic within Freemasonry. And then you are raised from the dead, exactly the same as, as Lazarus was. The only difference being uh, within Freemasonry, you're, you're, you're only dead for 30 minutes. Mm. Whereas in this um, older ceremony, it sounds like they were literally entombed for three days. Now, that would be quite a trial because A, you're alone in 
a dark room, probably with no light, no candles, no lamps, uh, for three days, contemplating your death for three days, because if your friends don't come back, you're stuck. Yeah. You really are dead. You're entombed. And so this is a, a typical ritual of initiation that you have to trust your colleagues within your um, within your society because only they can rescue you. And so you're waiting for three days to be let out of your tomb. So if, and you come out of the tomb, of course, within masonry, hoodwinked in the same fashion. Um, so. Yeah, it's pretty obvious that the Jesus character was was Grand Master of the Judean Lodge. Ah, okay. um, so, yeah, there's a lot of things within uh, the Gospel story which are exactly the same as we're told within the Gospel story, but just with a slight twist. Where does, that slight twist changes the meaning somewhat. Sure does. Where do, I mean, another alternative history, which would be interesting, the, it would be... Uh, what if there was Emperor Jesus? I mean, I, you know, that would be, a, a, yeah. who knows? <laughs> um, anyway, the uh, so where does the the spear and the grail fit in? Or is that just mythology? Um, well, we, we can do the grail separately and then move on to Arthur, I suppose. Uh, how far are we into this? We've done nearly... We're just shy of an hour. Okay. Um well, let's, let's have a look at the grail first of all, because there is another unspoken element of the gospel story which links into the grail, um, which is the sacred stone. So there was a sacred stone that was knocking around this region for thousands of years, which was known as the Benben. Um, and the Benben stone was at Heliopolis. It used to sit on top of an obelisk, and it was known as a meteorite, and it was linked to the phoenix. Um, and that was quite famous, and that was taken at some point, it disappears. Um, it was known as the um, uh, navel of the universe and things of that nature. Well, it seems to have gone off to um, Greece, probably with Ale Alexander, maybe when, um, or maybe even before that, because, yeah, we had, the, um, we had a lot of Greek influence within Egypt, even in the uh, sort of um, 6th century BC and so on, with a lot of mercenaries over there. Mm -hmm. But um, at about that time, this stone seems to have moved to um, Delphi in uh, Greece, because we have the Omphalos of Delphi, which is a very, very similar stone. Uh, again, it's supposed to be meteoric, supposed to be the sort of uh, navel of the universe. And... Um, it's a sort of small stone about, I don't know, uh, 60 centimetres high, two foot high, uh, probably meteoric, um, obviously sacred, being um, venerated by many people. Uh, um, and it goes across to Persia, Parthia, probably with Alexander the Great, because it ends up in uh, Parthia. We have got lots of coins from Parthia with um, illustrations of it. Um, then it comes back to Edessa. It's in Edessa in the 1st and 2nd centuries AD. Maybe one of the reasons why Edessa became so famous is it had this sacred stone. Now, the coins in Edessa are interesting because uh, they are cubic, and they say it's a cubic Bethel um, or Omphalos. I don't think they're correct. Um, a Bethel is 
literally a Beth El, which is a house of God. Right. So I think what they're portraying is the house uh, and not the sacred stone. Ah. And the house is a um, Ark of the Covenant. So what we get on the Odessan coins is an image of the Ark of the Covenant. It's a square box within within a temple. And the sacred stone would have been inside the, um, the square box. Um, and then later on, second uh, come third century, it ends up in Syria. And again there, we actually see the stone. We've got good images of the coin sitting in a temple uh, linked to the phoenix because it has the phoenix embossed on its surface. And here it was known as the Elagabal, which means the mountain of God. And yes, it sort of looks like a small mountain. You know, it's only two foot high. But anyway, it looks like a small mountain and it, it's definitely sort of sacred. So it's the mountain of God. It is, uh, and it, in fact, the mountain of the sun god, to be more accurate, because it's known as the Heliogabal as well, the uh, sun god. Um, so it was in Syria. Uh, this is, uh, you know, early, late second, early third century. And then it's taken to Rome by Emperor Elagabalus. And Elagabalus is a, not a very well-known uh, emperor of Rome. He was the mad emperor who was a, a eunuch. Um, who was a, a priest of the Elagabal. He took this stone uh, to Rome and built a temple for it there. Um, and so what does this have to do with the gospel story? Well, the priests who ministered to this stone uh, were known as the Galli or the Galileans. So Josephus Flavius calls them the Galileans. And, and remember that... Uh, Peter and Jesus were both, both said to be Galileans. And the thing is, these Galileans were eunuchs. And so all of the priests of the um, Elagabal had to be eunuchs. Uh, and so that is why we have Jesus. Um, what does it, what does he say? Um, this comes from the Gospel of Matthew. Let me read this because it's, uh, it's fairly pertinent. Okay. Uh, Matthew nineteen twelve. Again, people will not know of this verse because it's not something that uh, your local priest is going to talk about. Uh, he asks his disciples to castrate themselves. So it says, there are some eunuchs, this is Jesus speaking, there are some eunuchs who were born from their mother's womb. There are some eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men, uh, but there are other eunuchs which have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He that is able to receive it, let him receive it. So here is Jesus asking his disciples to castrate themselves. Why would he do such a thing? Because the galley priests had to be eunuchs or the Galileans, as they were known. And, of course, Jesus and, and uh, Peter were both Galileans. And so, um, and that's probably why Peter was called Peter, because it was the Galileans who looked after the sacred stone. And, of course, that was Peter's title. Well, in fact, his name was not Peter, of course. His name was Simon. But he was given the title 
Pitikifas, which means stone, stone. So he was the keeper of the sacred stone. He was the keeper of the Alagabal. That's why um, the stone was actually present at uh, Edessa in the first century. And it was central to this gospel story. Now, the interesting thing is that um, this links into Arthurian legend. So we have this story of this uh, sacred um, stone. Uh, but within, well, within Christian history and Arthurian history, we have the, the story of, of the Grail. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Grail has several aspects to it, several facets. Um, you know, on the surface, it's supposed to be a dish. You know, it was the dish that held the blood of Jesus. Uh, but that can either be um, uh, a San Jareal, which is a, you know, a sacred dish, or it could be the um, sang royal, which is the royal blood. So it's the dish that held the blood, the royal blood of this bloodline. But it's also um, a genealogy. And there's a good illustration of this within Arthurian legend, where uh, the knights um, are introducing a new knight to the round table. This was Firefix, uh, who was the black and white because they have this strange union of East and, and West, and, and the knight that was born was called Firefitz. He was black and white. He was piebald. Uh, and they're introducing this guy into the round table. And so they parade the grail around the table. And um, so they say to the new knight, can you see the grail? And he said, Firefitz says, well, no, I, I can't see the grail. All I can see is this princess holding a green cloth. And so all of the other knights fall about laughing sort of thing, you can imagine. Because what he doesn't realize is that the um, the grail is the princess. Mm. Because she is the bloodline. So the grail is her womb. The, uh, the sacred uh, grail uh, dish is is the womb of, of the princess. Well, green also has a so lot of uh, symbology yeah. in the Arthurian legend and, and beyond. Uh, I know the green man, I know the green sash of sort of like invincibility, that kind of thing. <laughs> it's, it's just another piece of their symbolism. Everything is held within symbolism and uh, pseudonyms and so on, because you couldn't actually mention this out in the open, especially back in the Middle Ages. A lot of this was highly heretical. Especially if that uh, princess was, you know, Mary Magdalene, mm-hmm. then it becomes highly, highly heretical. So you've got to be very careful what you say sometimes. Um, but then within Arthurian legend, that they say that the Grail was actually a sacred stone, and it was linked to the phoenix. And of course, we have this history of the sacred stone that's linked to the phoenix. Uh, we know the Elagabal is linked to the phoenix because. It has the phoenix embossed on the side of it. So, especially on the coins when it went to Rome with Emperor Elagabalus, we have some very good gold coins of the uh, Elagabal being paraded around Rome uh, in a chariot drawn by four horses. And again, it's a you know conical sort of little stone with the um, phoenix embossed on the side of it. And 
this has to be an ancient tradition because I don't, I can't see, I can't imagine that uh, Wolfram von Eschenbach, who was the author of this tale, would ever have seen one of these coins. And yet he seemed to know that this sacred stone um, was linked to the um, phoenix. Um, so yeah, that's the history of the grail. The grail was the sacred stone. Can I ask you a question about the, uh, you said it was a, a, a black stone uh, tied to a, a meteor, Ella Cabal. Um, you know, I, I, I guess that means mountain, uh, or Cabal does means mountain. Um, you know, the, the word and the story beneath it, you know, it, it reminds me of the Kaaba stone. Is there any association with the Grail and the Kaaba stone, or is it just the yeah. word Kaaba? Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Thinking of switching banks and looking for one that is friendly, takes the time to get to know you, and is invested in the community? Then it's time you met the folks at Arundel Federal Savings Bank, your hometown community bank. From first homes to refinancing and car loans to checking accounts, we've been helping local residents and their families with their financial needs since 1906. Visit us at ArundelFederal.com. After all these years, it's no wonder we treat you like family. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender, NMLS number 671636. Uh, people people say that the Kaaba stone, this is in Mecca, <clears throat> is a small piece of the um, El Gabal that's broken off. Because remember, the Kaaba stone is six small pieces that have been glued together. Mm -hmm. So it's only a small part of it. But yes, it was supposed to be reputed to be a part of the El Gabal stone. Um, but the actual El Gabal stone disappeared when Ele uh, Emperor El Gabalus was murdered. And we don't know what happened to it. The Scots say that they have it in um, in Scotland. Uh, it's the Stone of Scone, uh, according to them. But there is no evidence of that. Um, when I went to a Templar meeting up at um, Roslyn Chapel, um, because I'm, I'm a Mason myself, um, but um, they had a little video supposed to be of the other Gabal stone, which was yeah, their stone was shaped more like a curling stone than, than a small mountain. Um, and it was supposed to have um, the properties of levitation. But um, <clears throat> of course, there was no evidence that this was base in fact. Uh, I didn't see any stone. I didn't see any proof. Just this little video. Um, so, yeah, that was a bit of a disappointment. But anyway, they, they've said for a long time that they've got it in Scotland, but there is no evidence of that. What about the spear? The spear that, uh, I guess, the Roman soldier was used to, uh, I guess, finish what the crucifixion uh, failed to do? Yeah, the, there is the, this story of the spear. I'm not entirely sure if this is true. Uh, uh, initially, I thought this cut in the side of Jesus was just a um, mummification wound because every pharaoh in Egypt has a cut in their side in exactly the same fashion. Mm -hmm. It's the cut that they made, the incision they made, 
in order to uh, uh, take out the intestines before mummification. So every mummy has a cut in the side in exactly the same fashion, which I found interesting. So I thought that might have just been the mummification of Jesus because he was sent all of these resins and everything else um, in order for mummification to take place. But if the story is that he survived, then that um, obviously didn't happen. It could have only happened to the other two leaders of the Jewish revolt, whoever they were. Uh, obviously, princes of Edessa, you know, if he was the king of Edessa, they would be princes of Edessa. Maybe some of them were mummified and had a cut in their side. So, yes, I'm not terribly sure about the uh, Spear of Destiny. Okay. Um, but this does bring us into Arthurian legend and its links with the gospel story. So this is where I have a very different take on Arthurian legend. And this is, I mean, all of my work on the New Testament is pretty shocking and new. Yeah. You won't find it in any other books. But my Arthurian legend is even more shocking to the four Arthurian purists because they've never thought of this in their entire lives. And they are shocked with a capital sh. Um, <laughs> they don't like it. They don't like it up, unfortunately, uh, because it's very different to the um, standard story. Um, because there is a problem with Arthurian legend in that it, it does not exist. King Arthur does not exist in the historical record. And, you know, the purists and, and just, you know, onlookers who, who think they know the story because, you know, they, they've seen some films and whatever, read a few books, they think they know the story, but they don't know the story because the story is never told properly, especially in films, as you can imagine with films. Um, Arthur does not exist in the historical record. So the oldest record we have from this era is Gildas, who's fifth or sixth century. So he's from this era, um, this very era when this, this guy was supposed to be ruling uh, in Britain. And he wrote the, the, the Ruin and Conquest of Britain. And he doesn't mention King Arthur. So the very guy who was there, the chronicler who was there at the time, does not mention King Arthur at all. Then we have the Venerable Bede, 8th century. He does a, you know, um, a fairly good history of, of England. It's called the Ecclesiastical History of the English. And he doesn't mention King Arthur, not once. And then we come on to Nennius. He's sort of 9th century. And he mentions a warrior who might have been called Arthur. But um, he doesn't mention a King Arthur, and there's no Arthurian story. So there's no royal court, there's no Camelot, there's no table, there's no knights, there's no Guinevere, none of that standard story of King Arthur that we know of is present in the story by Nennius. Uh, and then we come on to William of Malmesbury, the first of his books, and Henry Huntington. Uh, we're up to the 12th century now, uh, so we're already 500, 600 years displaced from, from the actual time of 
you know, this mythical Arthur. And Huntingdon, again, he mentions a warrior called Arthur, but there's no King Arthur, there's no Arthur story. Um, and then we come to 1135, so a good 600 years after King Arthur is supposed to have been around. And we get Walter of Oxford and Geoffrey of Monmouth, who write the chronicle of kings and the history of the kings of Britain. And suddenly, we get the entire Arthurian story. Pretty much all of it, except for the Round Table and Lancelot. I think that's about the only two things that are missing. We have the whole story. Suddenly arrives, 600 years later, for no good reason. Um, and you've got to ask yourself, why on earth would that be so? It's got to be mythology, isn't it? Or, or it's got to be something else. It can't be real. This story suddenly arrives 600 years later. And other people have noted this. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm not the first to have noticed. Uh, William of Newburgh, who wrote the History of English Affairs in 1160, so only um, 30 years sort of later, and William of Newburgh ridicules the whole of the um, idea of the story of King Arthur. So he writes about the Arthurian story written by Oxford and Monmouth. He writes, only a person ignorant of ancient history can for a moment doubt how impertinently and impudently Monmouth falsifies the history in every respect. Whatever Geoffrey of Monmouth has written, it's a fiction invented either by himself or by others and promulgated either through an unchecked propensity to falsehood or a desire to please the Britons. For how would the elder historians, the more ancient historians, who were ever anxious to omit nothing remarkable and even recorded trivial circumstances, pass by unnoticed so incomparable a man and such surpassing deeds as Arthur? How could they, I repeat, by their silence, suppress Arthur a British monarch who was superior to Alexander the Great. Okay, that's only 30 years after the Arthurian story broke uh, out in, into the mainstream. And, you know, quite rightly, Newborough says it's a load of rubbish. How could you suppress that story for 600 years <clears throat> and suddenly find this entire story from nowhere? Where did it come from? So this is the problem that lies behind Arthurian legend and nobody will address. Um, and then there are other problems, big problems, because many of the manuscripts are nothing like the Arthurian story. So if you read um, Parsifal by Wolfram von Eschenbach, um, it starts the story just where you expect it to be, um, in Syria. So the father of Percival, Sir Percival, is a monarch, sorry, he's a knight working for a monarch in Syria. And then we have other problems. We have <coughs> um, the, yes, the uncle or the great uncle of Sir Percival was um, uh, Nicodemus, 
the first century gospel Nicodemus was the uh, uh, great uncle of Sir Percival. Um, oh, no, correction. I'm just, just mis, mis uh, saying that. Uh, Percival was the great nephew of Joseph of Arimathea. So we're talking first century here, and we're talking about the Near East again. Um, and likewise, um, the father of Percival was given the donkey that belonged to uh, Joseph of Arimathea. So there are lots of strange oddities within Arthurian legend that are not mentioned. And the, the biggest of these um, is, I'm just looking for it, um, the problem that, I want to give a quote here. Yeah, <clears throat> the, the problem is that two of these, or maybe three of these um, manuscripts, because remember we have manuscripts from many different authors uh, about our Arthurian legend. Um, the problem is that three of these uh, manuscripts say that the original author of Arthurian legend was Josephus Flavius. We're missing that a few a centuries, right? Yeah, uh, Josephus Flavius is first century, first century Near East. Um, and, and this has been recognized, of course, but, but dismissed. So you get people like Nietzsche, um, who is you know, one of the fathers of uh, Arthurian research. And he says, <clears throat> I'll just quote this for you, um, the role of Josephus within the story is uh, of greater importance in our work than that of Joseph. It is Josephus to whom we owe the tale, the tale of King Arthur. And he is known as the good clerk and the good hermit. Twice the text calls him simply Joseph, and twice he's called Josephus. Nevertheless, it is now generally supposed that the confusion between these Josephs, between these two Josephs, Joseph of Arimathea and Josephus Flavius, the Jewish historian, gave rise to the legend of Joseph and his son Josephus, as mentioned above. Um, because they say that um, the that Josephus Flavius was the son of Joseph of Arimathea within Arthurian legend. Because you've got to remember that within Arthurian legend, Arthur is only a bit player. You know, the, the great hero of Arthurian legend is Joseph of Arimathea. And so a lot of the story revolves around him, not around King Arthur. And so a lot of the story is first century, um, which is a bit of a problem. So, and here Nietzsche cannot bring himself to say that Joseph of Arimathea is Joseph of Slavius. Um, so he's just saying, you know, the text was confused. Um, and Ernst Brugger goes on, um, and he, he muddies the waters even more. I think he's another um, early, uh, early 19th century, uh, 1906, I think. Nietzsche was 1903 when he wrote this one. And Brugger is 1906. <clears throat> so Brugger says, because even if Josephus Flavius was well known as a historian, and even much respected and held as a Christian historian, 
it remains striking that he could re record events from British history that occurred many centuries after his death. I think these oddities are only the result of a confusion. The problem being that the author of Arthurian legend was said to be Josephus Flavius. And that is a huge problem. So I overcome that problem in one easy fell swoop. And it's a it's a reevaluation that people don't like. And we can see how this happened because of the um, chronology of Arthurian legend. Um, yes, um, we've got to remember here, in, in the um, confusion between these two Josephs, so we have Joseph of Arimathea and Joseph as Flavius. Now, in our previous chat, we were talking about Jesus being taken down from the cross mm -hmm. and how that was likely to be Joseph as Flavius. And therefore, Josephus Flavius was Joseph of Arimathea. Um, well, these are the, the similarities between these two characters. So Joseph of Arimathea was a Jewish aristocrat and priest, a Judaic soldier in the Jewish revolt. He was a soldier who worked for the Romans. He was a member of the Sanhedrin after the Jewish revolt. He was a scribe or clerk who wrote the secular history of Judea. Um, and, um, yes, according to um, to Arthurian legend. Um, yes, uh, yeah, no, you need to know some more information before you can see that. Um, anyway, there are numerous links between Joseph of Arimathea and Josephus Flavius. And the other one that's given by Arthurian legend is the story of the crucifixion. So we have a separate story of the crucifixion from Arthurian legend, which says that Joseph of Arimathea, of course, because this is following the um, uh, biblical story, took Jesus down from the cross. And um, he was captured by uh, Emperor, sorry, he was captured by the Romans and thrown into prison. And in prison, he goes to sleep for three days, but he wakes up 40 years later and he's awoken by Emperor Vespasian and he's no um, older than he was before. So he's exactly the same as he was before. So he goes to sleep for three days and wakes up 40 years later so he can become an army commander working for Emperor Vespasian. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
You're ready to move forward and buy your first home in Maryland, but need somebody with experience when it comes to getting your mortgage. Someone local, someone part of the hometown where you'll be living. And that's where Arundel Federal comes in. In business since 1906, Arundel Federal is this area's hometown lender and experienced. That's the Arundel Federal Advantage from application to closing a bank you can trust. Visit ArundelFederal.com to view rates and get started. Member FDIC Equal Housing Lender NMLS number 671636. Why do they have this strange story within Arthurian legend? It's because Joseph of Arimathea was Josephus Flavius. Remember, Josephus Flavius was an army commander working for Emperor Vespasian. But they have to bridge that 40-year gap. They have to take Joseph of Arimathea from the AD 30s and recast him into the AD 70s. How do they do that? By making him go to, th to sleep for three days and wake up 40 years later. It's quite obvious that these two characters were the same person. So how do we get all of this story um, within Arthurian legend? How can we square this, this very uncertain circle? The clue is in the date. So the first time this story comes to us, um, is A.D. 1135 with Monmouth and Oxford. Now, what is key about that date? The key thing is that this is just after the First Crusade. So the First Crusade was 1096. And off they go across Anatolia, and they're heading off to free uh, Jerusalem from from the Muslims who had invaded those lands and taken over those lands. Remember the whole of the East and North Africa was all Christian uh, before the um, Muslim invasions of the eighth century. Mm. And so they were over in the East to liberate those Christian lands from Muslim control. So they go across Anatolia and they get to modern, well, Antioch as it's known, Antakya on the northeast tip of the Mediterranean. And they don't turn right and go down to Jerusalem. They don't go through the Levant. Where do they go to? The first city that was liberated by the First Crusade under Camp Baldwin was Edessa. We're back to our famous city of Edessa, which is being deleted from uh, from uh, ancient and modern history. But the first city to be liberated from Muslim control during the First Crusade was Edessa. And this was in 1098. So Edessa was, re, uh, was resurrected as well. Yeah, it was in the First Crusade. And the question is, why did they want to go to Edessa? Why was that the first place to be liberated? I think it's because somebody knew that Edessa was central to this story. And if you wanted to find any secrets, any genealogies, any artifacts that were left over from the sort of gospel period, you didn't want to go necessarily to Jerusalem to find them. You wanted to go to their capital city, which was Edessa. And that's why they went to Edessa. And I think they found something. 
I think they did find some genealogies, some histories. I think they found basically what I've written in my book, Jesus, King of Edessa. They found that story, which was the secular story um, of the biblical Jesus. Uh, because a funny thing happens then. You know, 30 years later, after um, this um, liberation of Edessa, suddenly we get Arthurian legend. So where did this story come from? I think it came from Edessa. So the story itself was not about King Arthur. It was about King Jesus. And that's why there are so many similarities to the uh, gospel story within Arthurian legend. That's why the key hero um, of Arthurian legend was Joseph of Arimathea. Why so much of it is set in the first century? Why so much of it is, is based on Aramaic? Um, I had an, Ar uh, an argument with, with um, a few Arthurian historians uh, because I, I'm translating a lot of the material in Arthurian legend uh, from the Aramaic. And they're going, well, it's Welsh. <laughs> I'm saying it's not Welsh. Um, this, this is an Eastern story. This is an Aramaic story. No, no, it's all Welsh. They had Sarmatian so Knights, which is uh, Persian people. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm looking through the stories, um, the original manuscripts in Welsh and Latin, and I find, well, first of all, every time the knights come across something, so, you know, they, they have all the, these, you know, um, quests and these magical stories, they're going off in boats and so on, they keep finding things. Every time they find an inscription, the inscription is always in the Chaldean, Aramaic. Not in the Welsh. It always says, it's, you know, the inscription is, even the inscription on uh, Excalibur is, is in the Chaldean, it's in Aramaic. Now, Chaldea um, was sort of also near where Parthia and Media were, like sort of that sort yes. of Iran, Iraq, that part of the world. All of that part of the world spoke Aramaic at that time. It was the lingua franca of that region. But then I looked into uh, the genealogy and I came across um, Uther Pendragon. Uther being the father of King Arthur. Sure. Very famous person. Everybody knows Uther Pendragon. It means um, the head, head dragon or something in the Welsh. So I'm, I'm looking through the text and it doesn't say Uther Pendragon at all. In all of the texts I've found, the uh, original manuscripts, it does not say Uther Pendragon. It says Uther Ben Dragon. Two separate words, and it's a B. It's not Pendragon, it's Ben Dragon. <clears throat> and that's Aramaic. That's not Welsh. In, in, in Aramaic, it means the son of the fish. Okay. And that would actually, because of course Jesus was the fisher of men, the you know the symbol of the Pope is the fisher ring. Um, Jesus was the first of the fisher kings. Within Arthurian legend, we have this line of the fisher kings, um, because Jesus was the first king of the great month of Pisces. Um, I'm presuming your listeners will know the procession of the equinox. Uh, familiar with. We've had shows on the Zodiac directly and astrology directly and plenty others right. 
turned out to be part of astrology as well and accidentally but yeah i mean uh, it, it, pisces is the, uh, the the fish sign in the zodiac and and so jesus was born on the first day and that's sort of the whole fisher king it, it's not about the fisher you know teach a man to uh fish you you know, save them for life. It's, it's, it's not. It's not about that. The interesting thing, is, and let's see if I if I'm following along close enough, that the dragon aspect of it. Dragons are also often associated with comets, which are basically the same thing as meteorites, as far as the ancient world be concerned. And there you have the uh, the Grail Stone, basically. Um, you know, it's all all sort of ties together. Right? Because, uh, it would sort of be associated with the the dragon comet meteorite as well. Or am I just am I just spinning that out of whole cloth? Uh, yes and no, but the, the, there is a double symbolism here um, because in Aramaic, dragon means fish. Oh, okay. <laughs> so it, it means Pisces. Um, That's simpler. It's it's referring as much to Pisces as it is to a comet, but it, it is a comet in some respects because. Um, so, yeah, Uther ben Dragon means Uther, the son of a fish, the son of Pisces, the first of the fisher kings. How did fish turn um, into this but, giant serpent thing, or is it just the, the phonetics just happen to sound similar? No, I think it's been deliberately used. Um, you know, this was done on purpose, so they've chosen words specifically because they did rhyme. Um, because they say that Arthur, before Arthur was born, there was a comet in the sky that signified the birth of um, Arthur and Guinevere. And so this comet had two rays coming out of it, which of course a comet does. So it does, you know, chime with a comet or, uh, you know, a meteorite or whatever. Um, one ray signified Arthur and the other ray signified Guinevere. However, so, I mean, all of that sounds reasonable. So, you know, people could read that on the surface and say, well, that's reasonable. Mm -hmm. uh, that's what the prophecy means. However, um, the dragon means a fish. And so Uther Pendragon can mean the, the, the son of Ben Dragon, the son of a fish. And so the other apparition in the sky, which is identical, is the sign of Pisces, mm -hmm. because the sign of Pisces has two rays in exactly the same fashion as it describes. There, are, it, it, it is two rays, each ending with a fish. That's the sign of Pisces. However, more than that, so each fish was one, you know, one fish would have been Arthur, the other fish would have been Guinevere. That's what it says is the prophecy. However, if you go down to the um, Zodiac at Dendera in Egypt, in the great temple of Dendera, which is Ptolemaic. So this is, you know, Egypto-Greek, uh, something like second, third century BC. You will see the great Zodiac of Dendera. And on there, you will see Pisces, because it's a standard Zodiac, exactly as the same as we have now. The sign of Pisces is two rays ending in fish, exactly as it is now. But each of those rays um, is identified with Horus and Isis. They have little circles for Horus and a little circle for Isis on the end of those rays. And so here we have, a, as it were, a comet, a symbol in the sky, with two rays that end in a sun 
and in this case a mother, a male and a female, the sun and the moon, because Horus was identified with the sun, Isis was identified with the moon. And this is Arthur and Guinevere. It's almost as if the author of, um, which would have been Geoffrey of Monmouth or Walter of, um, of Oxford, when they wrote those stories, it's almost as if they were sitting there looking at the Zodiac of Dendera and describing the symbol of Pisces that they saw with two rays ending in a male and a female, a sun and a moon. Hmm. Arthur and Guinevere. It's the same symbolism. And that symbolism comes straight out of Egypt um, and very ancient history. And in this case, it's Arthur and Guinevere, who were the next ones. Um, but also, of course, it could be Jesus and Mary Magdalene. Because what I think has happened with this story, the reason it comes out of, um, out of the Near East during the Crusades is when they went on the first crusade, they went to Edessa. They found this secular story of Jesus as being a king of Edessa, the same as I've written in my book, Jesus, King of Edessa. And that was very interesting. That was, you know, groundbreaking, but it was heretical. How on earth can you tell that story within the medieval period? You would be burnt at the stake mm -hmm. by the Catholic Church. Just as Bloody Mary, even, you know, much later on during the um, 16th century, managed to burn 72, I think it was, uh, heretics at the stake because they didn't believe in the Catholic uh, version of Christianity. Uh, that was a problem. So how do you tell that story? How do you pass that story on through the generations if it is that heretical that you will be burned at the stake? The easy way around this is you turn it into a mythical story. Mm -hmm. No one's going to be burned at the stake for telling a mythical story about a semi-mythical king uh, of Britain that is not connected to the gospel story whatsoever. And so you're safe. And if you want to pass on this history, all you need to do is just whisper to your colleague or your friend or your family, Arthur is Jesus. And suddenly it all makes sense. And so you can pass on this story with impunity down through the generations um, because it's the same story. It's the same secular story. Um, and everyone will know it as soon as they've been initiated into the mysteries of Arthurian legend. Let me ask and you a couple Let me ask you a couple quick questions. I don't know if they're quick or not. But translate then for me how Excalibur fits into uh, the narrative. And I'm gonna do this with yeah, others I, things too. I'm gonna I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna do it I'm gonna ask Excalibur, Merlin Lady of the Lake, and and you can add anything else that they matter. I mean, the Avalon thing was is pretty clear. I mean that 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 one that one I, I don't think takes a lot of imagination. Yeah, um, uh, Excalibur, of course. Um, why did it get that name in the first place? Well, it is it's because Caliber, Caliber, uh, is the Aramaic for sword. Okay. So again, it's an Aramaic name. Right. Sword of the and, King, X is king, right? Yeah. 
and, and the sword in the stone is probably something to do with the uh, Elagabal. So we have this sacred stone, which was central to Arthurian legend, just as it was to, um, uh, uh, to gospel uh, history. And it was supposed to be a meteorite, but it was supposed to be perhaps magnetic. Now, if it was, that would be a very, very strange uh, force that nobody in that sort of era could explain very well. Mm -hmm. And it would be a marvel if you owned this stone and it was magnetic. So you could get a soldier with his sword and put the sword near the stone and God himself would get his ghostly hand come out of the stone and rip the sword out of your hands and stick it onto the stone. That would be a very, very strange force indeed that people could not explain. Um, that would mystify everybody. But Arthur, he could put his sword on the stone and take it away with ease. No problem at all. How did he manage that? Well, because he had a bronze sword, of course, mm. not a steel one. Um, so it could be, you know, the basis of the sword in the stone story from Arthurian legend. I think that's where Excalibur came from. Okay. Merlin? Merlin, um, well, Merlin was the magician. Now, who was the magician within the gospel story? He was Simon Magus. At Overstock, we know home is a pretty important place, and that's why we believe everyone deserves a home that makes them happy. Whether you're furnishing a new house or apartment, or simply looking to update and refresh a few rooms, Overstock has everyday free shipping and amazing deals on the beautiful, high-quality furniture and decor you need to transform any home into the home of your dreams. Overstock, making dream homes come true. At LA Fitness, there's no end to what you can try with your three-day free pass. Sign up today at startlafitness.com. From cycling to swimming, running to rowing, battle ropes to box jumps, and the perks don't stop there. When you join LA Fitness, it opens the door to premium amenities like Olympic lifting platforms, basketball courts, pools, and more. Stop into one of our hundreds of locations. Grab your free three-day pass at startlafitness.com. That's startlafitness.com. Amenities vary by location. Certain amenities may be available for an additional fee. Free three-day pass is redeemable by non-members only. Other restrictions apply. Simon Magus was a famous magician from this era. He's mentioned in the Gospels, but he's mostly mentioned in the uh, Clementine, uh, Clementine recognitions and so on, um, as being a very, very famous Magi. He was a Magus, he, again, out of Parthia. So he was a Magus, and he performed miracles through magic, not through miracles, not through the power of God. And uh, he would have been the, the, the Merlin character. And one of his famous miracles, magic tricks, as they called it, although there's no difference between the two, obviously, um, was he could conjure up a spirit of a boy. And so this was a real boy, but he was not there. It was just a spirit of a boy, and nobody could explain this. And it was, you know, a true marvel. Um, it's quite obvious that uh, Simon Magus had a camera obscura. So a camera obscura is a pinhole camera, basically. Camera obscura just means a dark room in, in uh, Latin. And that's all you need for a camera obscura. 
is a dark room, a very bright outside, which you have in the Near East, and a small hole in the wall. And that's all you need. And you can project the image of whatever is outside onto the back wall of your room. And they're very fascinating. If you've ever seen one, they are truly fascinating. It's even in this era, you know, when we're used to cinemas and televisions and God knows what. But the image it produces is of cinema quality. Mm. And that would have been absolutely fascinating to someone who had never seen this and didn't know how it worked, that you could have an image of a boy. And he's, he's a real boy because he, he looks perfectly real and he moves. You know, you can say, raise up your right hand and he'll raise up his right hand. It's a, it's a proper image of a boy, but he's not there. You can try and touch the wall and he's not there. Um, that would be utterly fascinating to people. The only thing is, of course, the image would be upside down. So if you wanted to make this realistic, you would have to hang the poor boy upside down <laughs> outside to, to make him look the right way up inside. But yeah, it would be a fascinating specter to people who have never seen this. And again, as I say, you could you could call to the boy and say, you know, move your leg, raise your arm, you know, blink. Well, you only had to do it once for it to become legend, I guess. Uh, <laughs> yeah. All right, so Simon Magus, who is not the same Simon that we talked about earlier. There were two Simons, right? Yeah, yeah, the Simon Peter and Simon Magus, yeah. They, they were different. So that's Merlin. So we, now we know about Excalibur. Um, maybe we explain why Arthur was so good in battle. If some, if a, if a knight has his shield up or a sword, and there's a, you know, all of a sudden your sword is going this way or that that way, you're sort of open to. Uh, it's, it's hard to defend. Um, all right, Lady of the Lake. Where, where, how does she come into this? Because I, I know, I know, Lancelot came later. So the whole thing about Lancelot being the the child of the lake or raised by the water nymphs. That that came later. That 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 may have been added, and you said the round table came later. To, well, the symbology of the round table is pretty obvious as well. Um, yeah. Well, we'll, well don't, don't don't forget that we'll do the uh, okay. round table next because that's important. But the lady of the lake, I think, just has to be Mary Magdalene um, <clears throat> because she was known as the Stella Maris, the sea star. So she was the lady of the lake. The lake being the Mediterranean. She was known as the Stella Maris. Um, that was her for formal title. Thought to be because she crossed the Mediterranean to France and she ended up in France. But um, the star of the sea, later on it was said to be the pole star because that was the, the star that mariners used when they were navigating. Um, but I think there is more symbolism to it than that. Um, I do have a, several pages on that, but I've forgotten what I've written. It's a trouble when you read, you, you write a thousand pages on this. Yeah, it's <laughs> and even a... now when I read my books, I keep going through, wow, that's really good. Where did this guy get this from? <laughs> oh, that was me, wasn't it? <laughs> yes. Well, you have, well there, there, there you go. Someone will have to read the book to get uh, more on that. But that answers that. Mary, the Lady of the Lake is uh, symbolic for Mary Magdalene. Easy enough. So I guess we go down to the round table. Yeah, the round table is interesting because that comes straight out of um, gospel story again. Because according to Arthurian legend, there were three round tables. The first round table was the table of the Last Supper, belonged to Jesus. So it was Jesus 
and uh, his 12 uh, disciples sitting around. So the last supper table was not rectangular, it was circular, according to Arthurian legend. Uh, the second round table was the uh, table of um, Joseph of Arimathea and his 12 disciples. And the third was the round table of King Arthur and his 12 knights. Quite, and they were all based on the same design. It specifically says that they were the same table based on the same design. So it's linking Arthur and Jesus directly through the round table symbology. Uh, but quite obviously, this round table symbology is a zodiac. Right. So, so he, he had more than 12 knights. Yeah, it's surrounded by its 12 constellations. Right. So the knights, the disciples, and the constellations are all the same. And the Jesus character would not sit at the head of the table, you know. If, if you look at the um, uh, Winchester um, round table, which is quite ancient, it goes back to um, Edward I, so it's like 12th century or something. Um, but that one has the, the, the kingly character, as it were, the 13th segment in the, in the 12 segments. That's not how it would be. The kingly character would be in the center of the table. So the uh, table would be um, have a hole in the center, and mm -hmm. the king would sit at the center. And why do we have this? Well, because it's not very well known that the primary symbol of early Judaism, and really here we're talking about Nazarene uh, Judaism, the Nazarene being the church of Jesus and James and Saul and Queen Helena of Edessa. She was a Nazarene as well. Um, the sacred symbol of Nazarene Judaism was the zodiac, mm -hmm. which is why we find all of these ancient zodiacs in Judea. So now six or eight so, um, synagogues have been found where the primary symbol in the center of the uh, synagogue is the zodiac, a big one four or five meters across, a large zodiac. And the best of these, I think, you probably find is at Hamat Tavera, on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. Um, and that's a first century zodiac. We know that because processionally, the head of um, Helios points at the, the join between Aries and Pisces, uh, which indicates the first century. Uh, secondly, because we have a story from Josephus Flavius, saying that he himself was sent to Tiberius to destroy that particular zodiac. Because the position he describes it in, he was sent because it contained heretical images of animals, which of course that zodiac does do. And that is doubly interesting because that zodiac was owned by Jesus, um, Jesus of Gamala Sophias. This is according to Josephus again, he tells us this. So then you have to work out who Jesus of Gamala really is. And I'll give you uh, two guesses. Um, so, yeah, so the last supper table was a zodiac. And I think that's exactly what the table was, because remember, in, in that part of the world, people didn't always have tables. Tables are a bit of a northern European habit. Um, over in the east, you tended to sit on the floor on a cushion. And so I think the zodiac at Hamat Tavera was 
a loss of the table. So you could bring your cushion as a as a knight, as a disciple. Um, you would each be allocated one of the signs of the zodiac that you belong to, and you bring your cushion and you sit at this table, uh, this mosaic table, and you have your last supper dinner. And also, of course, that whoever is sitting at the centre, which will be the kingly character, it will be the King Jesus character, the Jesus character, would sit in the centre of the zodiac, um, and that can be used as education as well as having your uh, Passover meal, as it were, um, because you can then explain, you know, the procession of the equinox and the constellations, and you know how the movements of the planets and everything else all as a part of, of that sort of initiation into the cosmos. Um, and the interesting thing also is if you look at the Lady Mary Zodiac, which again is just south of um, uh, the Sea of Galilee at Betchian, this is a slightly later one, and it's a Christian one. So it's no longer Judaic, it's Christian, and they've changed it slightly. It's in a monastery known as the um, Lady Mary Monastery. And here they've changed the constellations into months of the year. But of course, each month is um, representative of a particular constellation, of course. Um, and so they have exactly the same. They have the 12 months of the year around the outside which are symbolized by men, obviously the disciples. And in the center, instead of having Helios, the uh, sun god, they have a sun and a moon character, a kingly character and a queenly character. And it's where, where do we have a lady, uh, sorry, a prince and a princess surrounded by 12 disciples, 12 months? It just has to be an image of Jesus and Mary surrounded by their 12 disciples. So that's hugely heretical. Um, but that's in a Christian monastery from the 6th century. And in the Hamatavera zodiac, which is earlier, and it's Judaic, very incongruously, they have the image of Helios, the sun god. And this is in a synagogue, it's in a Jewish synagogue, and the central character in the middle is Helios, the Greek sun god, sitting on his chariot with four horses. Uh, and the other interesting thing about it is that Helios holds in his gravitational grasp a blue-green spherical earth. Now that's interesting because um, some people have said that this is supposed to be a disc or something, but no, it's not a disc because if you look at it, it's got lines of latitude and longitude on it, which are curved, just as they would be, of course, on a sphere. And the, um, the sphere is also lighter on one side and darker on the other, the same as it would be if you were looking at a sphere. So this is definitely a sphere that he's holding. So we have... Helios, the sun god, holding a blue-green spherical earth in his gravitational grasp in the first century. So the 
heliocentric model of the uh, of the solar system was well known at that time. Uh, this is one reason why I'm saying that the Jesus character was was into technology and science um, because this was well understood in this early era, right. and it was depicted on the zodiacs. And the odd thing is, of course, is that nobody will mention the zodiacs within Judaism or Christianity, even though they are well known, and so many of them have been discovered in uh, Judea and uh, modern Jordan. Um, taboo subjects, and, you know, the easiest way to erase a subject is you just don't mention it. And so how many people know that the primary symbol of early Judaism was the zodiac? Very few and how many people know that that design of the zodiac was the origin of the round table of King Arthur? Very, very few, because they think it's a separate history, but it's not a separate history. And this gives us the, the reasoning why Arthur was called Arthur and not Jesus, because it comes from the symbolism of the zodiac. So, on a zodiac, and you'll see this if you, if you just sort of Google zodiacs and, and design of zodiac and have a look at all the images that come up. Um, if you are looking from above at the solar system, you will see a zodiac with the constellations obviously around the outside, and in the center will be the sun, because the sun is the center of the zodiac, and you know. The, uh, all of the constellations of the ecliptic are around the sun. And so the sun is at the central position. And the sun is Helios, obviously the sun god. It's the Jesus character. Um, and that, that actually works. That, that play on words between sun and sun, son of God and the sun, the sun god, that works in the Greek as well because it's a Helios and a Huios. So again, they can be, they can be confused. But the alternative way of looking at this, the, the, the stars and the zodiac is if you look up. So you stand on the earth and you look up at the heavens above you. And you will see the, the signs of the zodiac round around the outside. And in the middle will be the polar stars, the, um, the stars at the celestial pole. And of course, the primary constellation at the celestial pole is Ursa Major, the Great Bear. And the Great Bear is the origin of the name for Arthur. His name is derived from the Great Bear. Because in the Greek, it's um, Arctus, I think it is, means bear in yep. Greek, mm -hmm. from which we get Arctic. The Arctic is named after a bear. But it's not a polar bear. It's not named after polar bears. It's named after Ursa Major, uh, the great bear in the heavens above. And that is the origin of the name of King Arthur. So within this zodiac, you can either have the Jesus, Jesus character, the sun god or the son of God, or you can have in the center, you can have the Ursa Major character, the Earth, the Arctus, the Arthur character as the center of the zodiac. That's how we get this differentiation between the two names of the same person. 
So we have the greatest story never told is actually the greatest story that's been retold so many times that Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. You're ready to move forward and buy your first home in Maryland, but need somebody with experience when it comes to getting your mortgage. Someone local, someone part of the hometown where you'll be living. And that's where Arundel Federal comes in. In business since 1906, Arundel Federal is this area's hometown lender and experienced. That's the Arundel Federal Advantage, from application to closing, a bank you can trust. Visit ArundelFederal.com to view rates and get started. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender, NMLS number 671636. We don't know it's the greatest story ever told. Yeah, it's the, the easiest way to cover up a story is to hide it in plain sight, and that's exactly what they've done. They've hidden this story in plain sight, um, and everybody has read the history of Arthur. They've all understood it, but not understood it properly. They think they knew it, but they don't know it. And, and so it can perpetuate itself quite happily, and, unless you've been initiated into the mysteries you will never know the difference i mean for instance well the we, once we and future king i mean the once and future king the return i mean yeah. yes um we we know this is not because the purists will still say oh no it's, it's it's a welsh story it's welsh you know it's something to do with the celts or you know saxons whatever and so i say to them okay so where is the earliest uh sculpture or engraving or mosaic of King Arthur, if this is a Welsh story. Where are the earliest uh, depictions of King Arthur? And there are three obvious ones, and they're very early. They date from the 12th century, so the very time of you know Monmouth and Oxford writing their stories about King Arthur. They date from that very era. And where are they? Are they in Wales? Are they in England? Um, no, they're all in Italy. <laughs> so we have um, the famous depiction of King Arthur on the doors of Modena Cathedral in northern Italy, the, the city of Ferrari. If you've ever been to the Ferrari Museum, you can see King Arthur while you're there <laughs> visiting the Ferrari Museum. Uh, he's on the doors of the uh, cathedral there. And it's an early Norman a depiction with all the knights being Norman knights, you know, dressed in Norman armor. Right. And it gives, it, it, they're all named, so there's no doubting who these people are. They've all got names. Um, and it's a depiction of um, uh, Guinevere and either Lancelot or Mordrain, one of the two, stuck in a tower because they both get stuck in a tower. Um, uh, Guinevere elopes either with uh, Mordrain, the, the son of Arthur, or with Lancelot, and they are in a tower being attacked by the knights and attacked by King Arthur. It's a famous story from Arthurian legend. Uh, but that's on the doors of Modena Cathedral. It's also on the doors of Barry Cathedral. They've got exactly the same depiction there. 
Uh, Barry is down in the south of Italy, on the, the sort of heel of Italy somewhere. Um, they're not named there, but since it is exactly the same depiction as Modena, we can be sure exactly who these characters are. And again, they're attacking this um, tower. And then we have a mosaic of Arthur in, uh, I was going to say Odessa, um, o Odina. Anyway, it's a, it's a town in the south of Italy. It sounds a bit like Edessa, but it's spelled with an O, and I can't quite remember what it's called. But anyway, uh, you can look it up. I'm sure it'll be online. And there's a famous mosaic of King Arthur on the floor of that cathedral. So all of the early depictions of King Arthur are in Italy, not in Britain. Right. And all of the early manuscripts of King Arthur are all European. People think this is a British story, but it's not. Um, it's painfully said in many of these uh, uh, early researches, you know, by Nietzsche and Brugger, that the main Arthurian manu manuscripts, they come from Greece, from Holland, from Germany, from France, from Italy, from Scotland. Um, the only place that you do not get any manuscripts about King Arthur is Britain. There are no manuscripts. Um, e even Walter um, Oxford and Monmouth, their story about King Arthur came from Normandy. It wasn't a British story. They got a manuscript from Normandy or Brittany and they copied it. It was not a British story. And the only British one we have is um, the late one, uh, Mort de Arthur. And that was a very late manuscript. And in the, uh, in, in the four pages of that book, it says that he was only writing this story because he could not find a British story of King Arthur. And he lists all of the places you can find these stories. And the only place you cannot find these stories was in Britain. Right. That was, was that Thomas Mallory? That was Mallory, yes. Okay. Walter Arthur. All right. Um, and yeah, so that, I mean, that's, that's a problem for the Welsh provenance of this story. It is not there. And, and people will say, oh, yes, it is. It's in the, um, it's in the Welsh annals. And you say, okay, well, we'll go and find it for me. Give me a quote. And of course, you look at the Welsh annals, and it doesn't mention the Arthurian story at all. It has one line about someone who might have been called Arthur, a warrior called Arthur. Right. And you think, what? Well, you're trying to say that that's the story of King Arthur? Right. The, You've got one line? That's the, the, lived on for hundreds of years uh, uh, from, <laughs> from that. That, that. That must have been one hell of a line. Um. Yeah, it was. <laughs> so, yeah. So, in short, then, we have a problem with uh, the traditional story of King Arthur. It is simply not there in the historical record. Uh, and then we have a lot of similarities. And, uh, you know, the book I write on it is called The Grail Cipher. Uh, and that's like a 500-page um, exploration of all of these similarities between the Arthurian story and the first century and the Arthurian story and... Um, the Near East uh, biblical story. 
it, there are so many similarities and links, it is untrue. Uh, and people don't want to hear that because it changes the message somewhat. Um, but basically, our theory and story was the gospel story, a secular history of the secular Jesus. They couldn't write it as such because it was so heretical. And so they rewrote it into a story about a British king because it kept everybody nice and safe. Right. Um, and yet you could still perpetuate that story down through the generations. So I have a very interesting stuff. Um, remind the people of the, the titles of the three books and where they can find them. I know it's at the end of show one, but just in case people didn't listen to me at the beginning and they listened to show two first or, or never <laughs> go back. Yeah. So, um, the New Testament work uh, starts with Cleopatra to Christ. Uh, then it goes on to King Jesus, which is quite a big sort of 500 page book. That sort of establishes the links uh, between Jesus being a real monarch uh, and things of that nature. Because at that time, I'd never heard of Odessa. Um, and so that's a good explanation. It gives a foundation for why the Jesus story is not quite as, as we think it should be from the you know, gospel story. And then it goes on to Jesus, King of Edessa, which is the real exploration of the links with Edessa. But even when I wrote that book, I had never heard of Edessa. That's how thoroughly Edessa has been um, torn from real history. It's been uh, completely covered up. And so that's, that book was a story about Queen Helena. And suddenly, halfway through the book, I discovered <laughs> Edessa. Huh. And so suddenly the whole book had to be rewritten because suddenly Edessa became the central element of that story. Um, and that's another big 500-page book. And that's Jesus, King of Edessa explains why the gospel story came out of the dancer. Uh, and that was followed, so that was the trilogy, but it's now a trilogy in four parts. Um, so the, the, the follow-on book was uh, The Grail Cipher, and that's looking at the links uh, between uh, Arthurian legend and the gospel story. So it's now a trilogy in four parts, which people will recognize if they've ever read, read um, Hitchhiker's Guide <laughs> by Douglas Adams. Uh, that was also a trilogy in four parts. Yes, of course. Um, very good. Where, where can they find the books? Uh, books are all available on Amazon. I don't hold physical books now. I do Amazon because you can do um, iPad type ebooks and they also do print on demand which means i don't have to uh, hold any stocks or anything they do print on demand books uh, paperbacks from amazon um we're also on facebook i've got a good facebook site which is quite active which is uh ralph ellis.144 is the uh, title for that one and there's a bit of a youtube site i've got which is um I don't know, just Googling Ralph Ellis. If you see a sort of red and gold phoenix um, as the thumbnail, then that is my site, and you can have a look at those. Uh, yeah, I, I strongly recommend people join his Facebook if you can, or at least take a look at it. Uh, if nothing else, you, you, can, you can count on people 
accusing him of horrible things and calling him horrible names and, 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 and him never getting upset about it being completely unflappable. Uh, he's heard it all before folks. Um, so if, if you are listening in real time, when I drop these shows, you'll know that I drop one right before new year's and the week after new year's. And that's my own little symbolism because I, I figured this is pretty, uh, earth shattering to, uh, most listeners that this has changed a whole bunch of things. Um, well, from you know, from Adam and Eve all the way to King Arthur, it's probably uh, you know changed something that you love somewhere along the line. If you're listening to this show, anyway. <laughs> um, so uh, I figure it was a little bit world bending, and the changes of the new year probably was represented. So that's me playing a little game. If you if you're listening to this sometime in the the future from that uh, it'll be lost on you and it's probably more interesting to me than anyone else so i thank everyone for listening i thank ralph ellis for giving us two and a half hours of his time twice uh certainly i hope you go out and and buy the books and found this interesting and thank you for bearing with us for two a little bit longer shows than usual um but that's what happens when you're rewriting all of history and changing uh, the entirety of a, of a pretty well-known but much varied story. And if you're Arthur traditional fans, well, good news for you. I have another, a show already recorded with a more traditional um, take on Arthur just from the uh, literature and media and pop culture standpoint. Uh, and I have yet another one on Arthur, which is slightly uh, different than the traditional, probably closer to the traditional, uh, going more into the Druidical and, and, and green and the green man and all of that stuff. So, uh, you're going to get at least three different takes on Arthur, uh, probably all by the end of January. So thank you for listening to the garden of doom, Mr. Ellis. Again, thank you for partaking and, uh, be so kind to give us a rating and review. I really hate asking for that, but um, it, it, I'm told it really does help with things. And being that this is sort of a genre confusing show, uh, your reviews and your five stars really will help uh, people decide, huh, maybe I'll check that out. Um, so thanks all. And you'll hear from us again next week, maybe with uh, you know, the theme from Excalibur running through your head. Take care.
With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Arundel Federal Savings Bank wishes all our Maryland neighbors a happy new year and invites everyone to consider the gift of possibly saving money this year with a free mortgage wellness checkup. No cost to you. We'll review your loan options for possible money-saving solutions. Contact us at ArundelFederal.com for more. Thank you to our loyal customers, and here's to a happy and healthy 2023 for all. Member FDIC and Equal Housing Lender.